when you ask about nightmares, the ones that wake me up are these stress things. I think right. it's like real type I, it's A, a things. Stress thing, yeah. Whereas my regular dreams are probably what other people would consider to be nightmares because they're always weird. I have these like weird Lynchian dreams where it's never normal. Where like I'm in a house and there's like fish on the table that are talking or whatever, and I'm just like, <laughs> okay, but it never bothers me. It's the like real life stress that causes yeah. me to wake up. Hi everyone, I'm Catherine Corcoran. And I'm James Agenies. And this is Scream Dreams, The Nightmares That Shaped Us, where we dive in with your favorite filmmakers and creatives to talk about their nightmares and the things that really terrify them. Today we are joined by Michael Verratti and we are incredibly excited to have him. He's a filmmaker, writer, director, extraordinaire. Michael, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I love the setup. It's so fun. Thank you. It's very cozy. It is right? cozy. Yeah. It feels like a little bit of like a like a, a womb type vibe, <laughs> I feel. You know, that's exactly what I thought. It's <laughs> womb like. <laughs> it's <laughs> very yonic. Is that the term? Yonic? Yonic? Is that right? Yonic? It's the opposite of phallic. There, oh. There's a term oh. that is the opposite of phallic, and I think it's yonic. This recontextualizes yoni for me. <laughs> I feel like it might be yoni. Is it yoni? Your yoni is your... <laughs> that your sounds yoni. like a nickname for a grandma. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly where I thought my morning was going to go. If you're, yeah. if you're listening and you know if it's Yannick, like the like Yanni or Yonick, like your potential grandmother, <laughs> um, please, please let us know. Um, so, Michael, I, I think we were we were talking trauma before you even started. Yes. So, I mean, why not start there from sure. the beginning? Well, um, how did you get involved? That's that's our connection. How did you get involved? I guess with Lloyd, and how did it? I you know move forward in your in your career well uh my connection to trauma actually begins with usa up all night in the early 90s which okay. is how i uh became interested in horror in general uh, -huh. uh usa i had a deal with trauma where they had a package of their movies that they used to play on late night cable so like a lot of people of my generation that was how i experienced nukem high and the toxic avenger uh -huh. et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, and specifically, there was a movie that came out in 1991 and aired on television in 1992 called Vegas in Space, which mm -hmm. is a movie that is entirely populated by drag queens. And I know now, post-Dragula, post-Drag Race, uh, and all of the kind of proliferation of drag and culture, it's pretty common to see drag queens on TV. But in 1992, that was not the case. Seeing uh -huh. out queer people on television in 1992 was pretty non-existent as well. So it kind of really caught my attention uh, for reasons that I would also figure out about my own life later. Uh, and I always sort of obsessed about that movie. And then fast forward when I kind of formed my partnership with Peaches Christ, uh, Vegas and Space was made in the San Francisco area. And we both knew about this movie. We both had seen that broadcast and we both really wanted to celebrate that movie. And over the years, Peaches and I have uh, kind of in different ways had anniversary celebrations of it. We co-hosted the 25th anniversary of this uh, film at the Frameline Film Festival together. Mm -hmm. uh, we continue to do things. And I had reached out to Lloyd and said, look, I love this movie. I need more information about it so I can celebrate it properly. And it turned out that it was one of Lloyd's favorite movies in the trauma catalog because he oh, wow. understood uh, that it was groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. But because of when it came out and because it was a little bit too early, it sort of got buried. And he and his wife, Pat, both really love and celebrate the movie and the people in it. So he uh, and I just kind of struck up a friendship. And then over the years, as you know, happens once you're attached to Lloyd, he attaches to you in, a, in, in the best of ways. 
And uh, he would invite me to things. Uh, I ended up in Newcomb High with you, mm -hmm. uh, albeit in a much smaller part. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so it just continues to this day. I, I really am happy that uh, I'm a small little part in the trauma, an asterisk in the trauma history. So <laughs> I love it. I feel like you're kind of. I I go I always go to you as like the kind of encyclopedia on queer history in fear and in genre. Um, I hope that's not too much of uh, a title, but that that I really do feel that way because. Uh, but I I'm curious, I guess, for our listeners, how you think fear has manifested uh, pre '90s in in the queer community because I think that's what we're really talking about here is not just not just fear in terms of like cinema, but fear in terms of what actually terrifies us and how we saw that, I guess, manifest in. in well, I mean, that's a huge question. I'm sorry. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, I do think that in terms of the scope of the genre world that we all come from, uh, it manifests because horror really by definition is a genre of otherness. Mm -hmm. And queer people understand otherness because we are othered by society. So even before uh, maybe overt text, when queerness appears in subtext in films, we can see it, we recognize it because it's us. Mm -hmm. And whether that be uh, a representation of the monstrous, the way society views the monstrous, mm -hmm. I don't think that we view ourselves as monstrous, or otherness in different ways. I always say, because I have people say like how come we always have to be the monster how come we always have to be this and that's not necessarily how it works i think that halloween is a great example and i've said this many times before but if you're watching halloween lori is other because she yearns to be like the popular girls but she's presented as on the outside and even though she wants to be like them it's what sets her apart that when the night comes helps her survive mm -hmm. and those are things that are very queer uh narratives and things that we as queer people understand and so when you look at horror, of course, we attach ourselves to it because we recognize a lot of the fundamental DNA that makes up the genre because it's a lived experience for a lot of us. I think it's it's such a it's such a interesting space to exist in where like you for me, some of like the villains I saw early on, not necessarily in um in horror films, but in general, that were supposed to be like weird and terrifying, were upon reflection, were kind of like embracing queer traits, right? Like yeah. they were like effeminate and they spoke very clearly and they had this kind of like smoothness to them. Um, that that I I'm curious as to why you think that is, why people were so, why it was the villain was the like what I would now identify as the queer character, but I don't know if everybody else when they first watched well, it it's was social mores. Uh -huh. you know, they wanted to, uh, to, I guess, in a subconscious way, tell you that this is bad. But what ended up happening is we thought they were fabulous. <laughs> and Disney villains are the perfect example because when you watch those movies, they're, the characters that have those queer traits, the flamboyance, the otherness, are Ursula and Jafar and, you know, Scar. Scar. Yeah. Yeah, Scar for <laughs> sure. And you're meant as audience member to watch that and say, well, they're bad. Look at them. They're outside of society. They're trying to take away the normative things that we're supposed to want. Uh, but there's a certain type of audience member that looks at Ursula. She's like, well, she doesn't have to adhere to the rule of the king. She gets to live the way she wants and with her fabulous weird eel friends and she does not have to do what King Triton wants and she gets the best musical number in the movie you know it's like they always so do. it's sort yeah. of like if Disney wanted to sell me that she was the problem in this 
instead of being the mermaid who gets her voice taken away only to aspire to be with a man. Mm. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. She's way better. You it's, know? it's an like, empowering character. Yeah. Yeah. What I so like in what as a child then terrified you? You you've I you've talked about how early on you found empowered by the sense of otherness that was in horror movies. But what what frightened you? What gave you nightmares? Uh, well, the funny thing about that is everything for a while. <laughs> um, when I was a little kid, I was a, a definitive scaredy cat. My parents loved to talk about how uh, the second the music would get a little intense, I would run over and turn off the TV. Uh -huh. I'd just be like, nope, we're not doing this. <laughs> uh, and so I was afraid of everything. But I think that what happens, and I've had a good fortune of over the course of my career to have many conversations with fellow creators in the space is that often people who uh, obsess about what they're afraid of either completely run away from it or start gravitating towards it. So many horror creators I know kind of fixate on the things that scare them to the point they can't stop thinking about it. It's like an obsession. And then you kind of conquer it. Like next thing you know, you want to know everything about it. And that was me. And I think that kind of really speaks to my own kind of personality and interest where I have to like get into the nitty gritty. Like I want to read everything about everything. And now very little scares me in terms of, of content, but that was it for years and years and years. I was just kind of like, Oh, absolutely not. And then uh, I distinctly remember USA Up All Night had done a double feature of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And I saw it in the TV <laughs> guide. And I was like, I want to know what this is. And uh, my mom was like, look, this will probably scare you because you're scared of everything. And I was like, I want to watch it. I want to watch it. And she said, OK, look, I will let you watch this, but I'm going to stay up and watch it with you. So it was like Friday night, 1980, whatever. And uh, she makes a big bowl of popcorn, falls asleep 15 minutes into the movie. <laughs> and I stayed awake and watched both of them in the double feature. And then as USA used to do, they just ran both movies again until like until the wee hours of the morning. And I stayed up and watched them both again. And I always consider that like the baptism moment, because for me, it was this idea that this is not the kind of movie that my friends are talking about at school. This is not the kind of movie that they're playing at the multiplex up the street. It's something different. It's something a little forbidden. And even though I recognized that it was uh, something that used to scare me, I was fascinated because this is something that I don't know about and I want to know about it because it feels special and it feels secret. And even though Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is, of course, a horror comedy and not like Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre, it was the gateway because it allowed me to start looking at it as these things that are commentary. I mean, not as a kid, I didn't think this, but these things that were different and other and could be all my own. And it felt like that for a while because I didn't have the internet when I first saw those movies. Mm -hmm. So it was just like, these are my movies. And uh, that really went a long way to changing kind of the conversation in my own head about what's scary and what's not, because it might've been scary, but it also felt kind of delicious. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm curious for the two of you, uh, because James is is quite the horror host in his, in his own right with Kill Count and Dead Meat. And, and you and Peaches have your own kind, have your own, Midnight Mass show where you talk, where you host things. How do you both kind of choose what you're going to talk about and what resonates with you? I guess you go first and then maybe James. I'm oh. sorry I'm interviewing you both. No, that's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm actually, I want to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah, for me, it's it's a balancing act of what will perform well, unfortunately, analytically and with an audience and then what I want. And it's kind of become a, you know, like the directors say, one for them, one for me type thing. Because if it were up to me, all I would be covering is stuff like, Pledge Night and Butcher Baker <laughs> Nightmare Maker and the Stepfather series and Wishmaster. You put all those up there, 
the channel's going to crash. So you got to give them the Jurassic Parks and, and like mm-hmm. the screams, even though I love scream, but all the mainstream stuff that they are familiar with. And then you try to sneak in something like frogs and hope that they'll also watch that and, uh, you know, be inclined to open their minds a little bit. And those views are always way lower, but I, I do think we've <clears throat> dragged a lot of people in and been like, Oh yeah. Chopping mall is, is really fun. And, People watch it and they get into it too. So, right. yeah. What about you? Uh, well, for us, Midnight Mass is designed to worship at the altar of cinema. And one of the things that we always point out is that we are uh, all about cult cinema. So for that, it's not always just horror. We will celebrate Chopping Mall and then next week do Anti-Mame. If it has a significant audience that is dedicated, it's something that we're interested in. And uh, we found that with those movies the uh, the devotion is there, and we're interested in that. Uh, and so we look at movies that have a community, because what is cult if not community? It's a community that has attached itself to these movies and stayed with it over the years. And uh, that has been kind of the mission statement of Midnight Mass when it began as a screening series that Peaches used to do at the Bridge Theater in San Francisco in the late 90s. Uh, and then when we revived it as the podcast, we continue to take these movies, either bring folks who were part of the films to talk to them, talk to us about uh, the films, as well as members of the cult, because we want to talk about how those tendrils have reached out into the world. Like when uh, we were looking at doing Jawbreaker, one of the things we found was a, a woman on Instagram uh, during COVID recreated the entirety of the movie of Jawbreaker on her Instagram reels where she played every character because she <laughs> loved the movie that much. Or, uh, you know, we have had um, people do fan fiction or tattoos or like do drag nights based around their movies. And so not only do we want to talk to the creators, we want to talk to those people to show the impact. And that's how we curate because we, in many ways, are those people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Peaches and I are both filmmakers. We're both involved in the industry, but we always say that we got into it because we're fans. We get that connection. We understand that celebration. And it's true that there are, in terms of metrics and and views, there are going to be things that do better. But every once in a while, someone will come to us and say, hey, Hey, do you guys know nothing but trouble? Mm-hmm. And uh, I will say, okay, you know, I know this movie did not do well for the studio that made it, but I know that over the years on home video, it picked up esteem. And maybe Dan Aykroyd, in his single directorial effort, deserves another look. Mm-hmm. So then we'll do an episode celebrating that and have people who really have loved that movie since the day it came out. And we find that sometimes we get to change the conversation now because we'll do an episode on a movie like that that people aren't really talking about. And then suddenly we'll see it announced like this is getting a Blu-ray release. And we're like, hmm. Right? Yeah. I feel like we did this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like horror has this like second life sometimes that that honestly, and, and we don't know when this is going to air, but in the, in the midst of the, the strike, I feel like it's so interesting. You know, when I was looking at my own residuals um a lot of the indie horror that i've done actually pays me better than the studio projects and the reason for that is is because of the dvd market and the collector's market that exists in uh within genre that doesn't really exist within you know your mainstream tv titles um and i and and i've seen and they have these like second lives and cult screenings that keep going and from and again that kind of, I think, translates to what you do in terms of your work with Peaches, but then also in terms of, and I don't know if this is struck, Dragula, where, um, you know, you kind of, you create this kind of 
uh, counterculture that can exist within different performative aspects. Yeah. You know? Well, it's interesting because I view cult movies as movies we carry with us. Yeah. Uh, and for that reason, they become ingrained into uh, the fabric of our lives. When you see a movie like Rocky Horror and it affects okay. you in a specific moment in time and you find your community because of a movie like Rocky Horror, even if you don't go to those screenings later, it was part of your life in a specific you know, shaping way. And it's very interesting because it is sort of niche to specific kind of genre mm -hmm. or outsider films. Uh, and I always say, you know, prestige movies that are honored at the Oscars are great and have their place. And I certainly love them too. But we are not traveling to Kramer versus Kramer conventions. <laughs> We're going to see the reunions of A Nightmare on Elm Street, A Reanimator, etc. Because these movies are movies that people attach to and continue to attach to. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something really special about that that we haven't fully, maybe never will completely know what the magic sauce is, you know? Mm -hmm. Is it just me, guys, or did it get like a little chilly in here? That's cold. Actually, I, I felt like a warmth in my heart, oh. you know? I felt like a me like too. a calming presence that's mm. on me the wind. It seems like it seems like something is 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 moving. It's it's changing in here. Is is the ground shifting? Oh. Is, is something on the wind? A good witch? A bad <laughs> witch? <laughs> Woo! Hello! Barbara. Oh, Michael! I haven't seen you in so long. I want to hug you. Hug, hug, hug. Microphone hug. Good. How about yourself? It's good to see you. Okay. You are an amazing guest. I, it's just so great listening to you. Oh, you, you. heard all that? That's, that's I, very kind. Yes. There's a place up there that I was hiding before I swooped in. <laughs> and just your knowledge of queer horror and, you know, just movies in general and everything is amazing oh, right thank oh, you so much just, you're so good and i also loved working with you when we did the boulet brothers halfway to halloween last year yes that our was so fun cooking segment i mean yeah. i feel like i learned some kitchen things mm. yes fingers are really good yeah. to eat yeah mm. crispy mm -hmm. mm. crispy Ooh. yeah so did you guys really talk about your dreams and nightmares? Did we want to say anything more about that? Because our show is called Scream Great. Dreams. Barbara, so. keeping it on topic. <laughs> I know. Like, come on. Um, That's what she's appeared for. This is really real yeah. estate. Do, do you have any recurring dreams or nightmares or... It's funny. I think that... Do I, you dream? I do dream. All, uh, I, some of our guests say they don't dream and... Some of our hosts say they don't I dream. forget them. Interesting. <laughs> I try. Uh, no, it's interesting. I, I do dream. When you ask about nightmares, the ones that wake me up are these stress things. I think right. it's like real type I, it's A, a things. stress thing, yeah. Whereas my regular dreams are probably what other people would consider to be nightmares because they're always weird. I have these like weird Lynchian dreams where it's never normal where like I'm in a house and there's like fish on the table that are talking or whatever. And I'm just like, OK, but it never bothers <laughs> me. It's the like real life stress that causes yeah. me to wake up. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that brings us to our next segment, which is our Mad Lib segment. Oh, okay. Do you do Mad Libs or have you? Did well, you do them as a kid? I did. I remember uh, I, I love a good Mad Lib. Um, mm -hmm. Often leads to hijinks. Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay, well, hopefully this will lead to hijinks too. Okay. I you don't want a hijinkless Mad Lib. No, that's true. I think that that that's would be the true lib. disappointment. <laughs> sad lip. As if it just reads as normal. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, we just, we just write a story. Every once in a while we get it, it like works out. Yeah. Uh, if we like, we backfire. It's like we have two good of writers in this room. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so let's start. Um, we would like to have a noun, first of all. A noun. Yeah. Uh, dog. 
a dog. Okay. I need a verb. Uh, skipping. Skipping. That's so fun. <laughs> Another noun. Uh, temple. Temple? Ooh. Yeah, like a building. Oh, Spooky. not like. Ooh. Okay. Like, uh, <laughs> not like, like no. Like to pray at a temple? Or where uh, Cthulhu comes from. Oh, yeah. there you, go. Barbara, you can pray okay. to Cthulhu. <laughs> I, I, that reference I got. <laughs> okay, I need an adjective. Adjective. Uh, <laughs> well, the first adjective I thought of is not show appropriate. Um, <laughs> how about... Uh, this is rated R, this show, so it's okay. <laughs> let's say gaily. Gaily. Okay, <laughs> fine. Afterwards, you're going to have to whisper to me what the other choice was. Um, an emotion. An emotion. Um Enthusiastic. Is that an emotion? Sure. Yeah. We'll go with that. It's a state. Yeah. It's a state of being. <laughs> uh, adjective. Uh, adjective. Prickly. Prickly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another adjective. Slimy. <laughs> you always Who wrote this? You always what, say that what, what you say? Slimy. Slime, slimy? You know, don't you think horror yeah. needs to be slimy again? Yeah. I do. Yeah. Statement. Do. Slimy. Like, As yeah. someone who's come from trauma, I think I, I uh, love some good no, slime. In Stuart my, Gordon. I've yeah. been involved in some slimy yeah. projects in my day. No, I For saw sure. the new Ninja Turtles and it was gross and I was glad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, we they haven't are. had They're good slime. Yeah. Do you know what slime is made out of? Methyl cellulose. It's the thickener from McDonald's milkshakes. Oh. I'm not sure if they use it anymore, but back in the day in the 80s, that's what they used to thicken yeah. up the milkshakes, and we used it on our body. Oh my gosh, here's my pitch. It's a slime-based horror movie centered around milkshakes. We'll call it Shakes and Shivers, and here we go. Oh. <laughs> You're so good! You're so fast! I love it. Okay, name of a town. Name of a town. Um, Bethesda. Cthulhu town, no. <laughs> Bethesda. Yes. Bethesda. Bethesda. It's in Maryland. No. Yeah. A place I didn't live. I don't know why I pulled that from. <laughs> An exotic location. An exotic location. Um, Kilimanjaro. Oh. Kilimanjaro. I don't know how to spell that, but Kilimanjaro. Just how it sounds. <laughs> Just how it sounds. We'll figure okay. it out. Uh, supernatural creature. Uh, Mothman. Mothman. Oh, nice. Mothman. Mothman. Oh, Mothman. Yeah. Yeah, good he, pull. Mothman's Moth hunky. I like that Mothman. Yeah. Let's go. Sporting activity. Oh, lacrosse. Lacrosse? <laughs> 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 oh. Did you play lacrosse? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. I was a swimmer. Um, oh, okay. Awesome. No, I mean, not like, I was a lifeguard. Let's let's not rewrite history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, emotion. Uh, uh, happiness. I was oh, going to say jubilation. I was like, no. Happiness. That's nice. Yeah, Item found in your house. Knife. A knife. Yeah. All right. I got a few of those. Barbara's <laughs> uh, got a collection. Plural noun. Plural noun. Uh, rats. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And that's it. We're going to be taking a short break to put this all together. And we'll be right back. <laughs> and we're back with our Mad Lib segment. <laughs> this one was written by Catherine. We have Ooh. not read this yet, so we don't really know what it's about. But Catherine has assigned us our parts. Mm -hmm. And Michael's going to be the narrator because he's really good at that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then James is going to be James. Mm -hmm. huh. yeah. Interesting choice. <laughs> and then uh, I'm Elizabeth. <laughs> 
my writing. What was that? So critical of my writing. No, no, no. So, I, oh, I, interesting I, I, choice I, I, for a name there, James. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, no, no, no. I think it's awesome. Really. No, it's <laughs> no, a good call. Yeah, I just have to tease you. A bit, I you love know. it. She's got. I love. We, it. we have like a sisterly relationship. And I'm Elizabeth, and you're Sarah. I am. Okay, let's see what happens. Great. All right. <clears throat> Interior, creepy cabin, midnight, obviously. A darkened cabin stands in the heart of the Salem woods, shrouded in an eerie fog. The air is heavy with tension as Sarah, a young woman accused of witchcraft, James, a skeptical and overtly religious town person, and Elizabeth, a fervent believer in the supernatural, find themselves trapped inside. The room is adorned with dried herbs, flickering candles, weathered books of spells, and many other stereotypical witchy-looking things. The wind howls outside, heightening the sense of dread. I do solemnly swear by the dog which I skip my temple. I am innocent. I am no witch. Silence! I love saying that. <laughs> Thou wicked gay sorceress, <laughs> thy deceit and enthusiasm shall not avail thee. Elizabeth, prithee, we must remain prickly. We cannot hastily cast judgment. Suddenly, the cabin door slams shut. The room descends into darkness and a chill overtakes the room. A faint, slimy whisper is heard. Oh, somebody's playing the whisperer. Oh. That's you too. Okay, sorry. Bethesda's curse shall engulf thee all. You cannot hide from the witches of Kilimanjaro. The truth shall be unveiled. I would watch that. <laughs> Candlelit shadows twist and contort upon the walls. The air grows colder, almost frigid, saturated with the eerie presence. The Mothman! They encompass us! It's all your fault, witch! Elizabeth points to Sarah. <laughs> By my honor! I have never dabbled in witchcraft or lacrosse. Pray, believe me. We must seek evidence, Elizabeth. Let us not allow uh, happiness to cloud our discernment. The cabin convulses violently, objects crashing to the floor. An ancient knife of spells opens of its own accord, fluttering furiously, revealing malevolent symbols. Elizabeth cries out in prayer. By the names of Bethesda's lost souls, Guide us unto the truth. Is this woman a witch? As if in response to her plea, the tempestuous winds abate and the room falls into an eerie silence. The knife of spells settles, unveiling an inscription. James leans forward to read it aloud. Only the slimy of Heart Bethesda's curse. Sarah, if thou truly does not dabble in witchcraft, or lacrosse <laughs> thou hast not to fear yes i shall prove my innocence and confront the darkness of rats <laughs> well they clasp hands forming a circle their faith and resolve to overcome witchcraft and lacrosse intertwining <laughs> suddenly a blinding radiance engulfs the cabin the three shield their eyes the luminosity recedes revealing sarah enshrouded in an inferno of flames Nay! What sorcery is this? It is the curse of Bethesda! Quickly! Douse the flames before they consume her! They rush towards Sarah, yet their efforts to extinguish the conflagration prove futile. The truth... That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's very good. The truth 
about lacrosse cannot be hidden. <laughs> Sarah's form transmutes to ashes, her spirit consumed by the raging pyre. The flames subside, leaving a charred imprint upon the floor. She was innocent. We were too late. The curse hath claimed her. They stand in reverent silence, their hearts laden with grief and remorse fade out. Our bad. (laughs) So good. Okay, you have to write the feature for this. The feature for this. And then you have to direct it. And we're both in it. Oh, perfect. Yeah. About, uh, about the, the witches of lacrosse. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, yeah. when that, you think you about get... it, a lacrosse stick is broom-ish. I think yeah. you guys are just yeah. doing Quidditch, right? Oh, that's oh, going to be that. So I don't know yeah. what that is. They beat us to it. Yeah. <laughs> Never yeah. heard of it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that was fun. Yeah. 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 Good job, Catherine. Yeah, that were, was yeah were you inspired by our recent weekend in Salem? I was. Yeah. I was. If, if oh, one, yeah, you if went to Salem. No yeah. Yes, we did. We went to Salem. Well, you yeah. did not go. No, I was near it. <laughs> Nearby, I went to Salem. For a convention. Mm-hmm. And, yes, yes, and realized that I, I really am a lacrosse witch. Fair. <laughs> what was the witchiest thing you saw in Salem? Oh, um, well, there were a lot of witches in Salem, oh. which was quite confusing to me because I don't know if I would return. Mm. given the history but 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 oh, it, it yeah. seems to be a, a, yeah. a communal place oh, no, they're reclaiming their space yes yeah. they're reclaiming yeah. it i yeah. understand i understand yeah. i I'm, I'm all good for <laughs> yeah. for reclaiming well that was a witchy good time and sorry to say i have to go so oh i'll see you all later <gasps> oh my gosh she leaves just as suddenly as she appears people come and go so quickly here <laughs> they do is it w- is that a witch uh, I mean, who, I'm, who am I to say? It's true. We, made, we don't know. Made me feel good. I mean, a good witch. Yeah. I think Barbara Crampton, a good witch. <laughs> I believe that. Uh, so relieved when she joins us. How early do you think you can determine that a movie is a, a cult favorite? Like, what I, are some of the most recent films you've discussed on your podcast? I honestly think that it's always a matter of time. I think mm-hmm. that there's always this thing where... Uh, People think that they know what a cult movie is going to be. Although I will tell you, and uh, when I saw Josie and the Pussycats opening weekend, I was like, "This movie is going to be forever," <laughs> uh, and uh, it's it it has finally found its footing. Um, but the sad truth is about a lot of cult films is that a lot of them are not successful mm-hmm. uh, immediately, and then they find their audience. But I think that the thing is, is because they're speaking to something larger or outside of the mainstream conversation, and so. For a larger audience, it doesn't necessarily connect, but for the people who are looking for it and need it, it does. And then it creates this sort of like wave butterfly effect Mm -hmm. that people who need it find it. And that's what keeps it alive. And that's why the longevity happens. I do think that um, all movie is a conversation with the audience, but sometimes the movies that are cult films uh, have a conversation that maybe we're not ready to have yet, but the people who are hip to the cause uh, no, and they keep the conversation going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the f- the first time I ever really started to come to terms with my own um, identity and sexuality was going to the Rocky Horror Show. And I remember this like very specifically because like being a theater kid, which I think most of us have that background in, you know, you couldn't go until you were like 15 or something. Right. Like there was like a rule. <laughs> and then and like so we like waited and like dressed up and went. And I remember this like 
in this like excitement but also this innate fear in going because I didn't know what I was going to see and it was considered so like taboo and I was in my corset and it was like kind of sexy you know <laughs> and like I want and and I wonder how you feel about these cult films and the, those kind of experiences and whether or not everyone gets to go through them if they don't have a, a theater community like that, if if genre provides that platform for them. I think genre does. You know, I think the thing is, is that Rocky Horror for a while was the template. You know, yeah. the idea that this movie wasn't commercially successful, but the off the beaten uh, path, people found it. Um, and it ha its message was simple. It, don't dream it, be it, which is something that whether you're a theater kid or you're a goth kid or you're a queer kid, the idea that there's something bigger and grander and more fabulous for you if you choose to commit. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that what happened was people saw through Rocky the fact that people were coming out and not only coming to see the movie, but celebrating the movie. And we're looking at other films that had that. There was sort of this kind of run of midnight movies that define the midnight movie. Night of the Living Dead, El Topo, uh, Pink Flamingos. And people would turn out when these screenings happened. And there was sort of this awareness. Okay, these movies weren't for the mainstream, but look who's coming and we keep programming them. Mm -hmm. The fact that Rocky Horror up until COVID was the longest theatrical run a motion picture has ever had because it never left the theaters is significant. I mean, if I had my way at the end of the world, the very last movie that would ever screen in a theater is Rocky Horror because <laughs> I think it's earned its its stripes to do mm -hmm. so. But I think that, uh, you know, I'm departing from your question, but I do, uh, I do think that it's really all about creating a space and finding your place. That's that's what draws people to these movies. Yeah. Do you think there has been, maybe in recent years, a push to try to proclaim a movie as a cult film as part of its marketing or uh, just like preemptively say, this movie is one for all you weirdos out there without letting the audience decide that for themselves? I think so. I think it's hard to do though. Yeah. I think that sometimes it's accurate. I mean, like it's it's... If you go back to the conversation about camp, like the, the cultural conversation about camp, people always ask, can you intentionally make camp? And a lot of people will say no. And I don't think that's true because John Waters can intentionally <laughs> make camp. He knows what he's doing. But what it is, is I think you have to have a fundamental understanding of it. Uh, and it's all about earnestness. I think when an audience can smell that you're being disingenuous in some way or that you're crafting something solely to create something like that, an artifice, inherently it's not going to click. Mm -hmm. There has to be something pure about the presentation that makes people attached to it. You asked if I saw anything recently that I think is going to be a cult classic. I did recently go see Bottoms. And uh, I mean, time will tell, but it's one of those movies that it was going back to what I said about it's messy, it's queer, and it also just felt really true. And it's been a long time since I've seen a high school movie that was just like, yeah, we're going to go there. And it's really hard, like hard R kind of situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I left the theater feeling like a little scandalized, but like in a good way. And I was like, we have not had this in a while. And uh, I feel like it's going to be one that is discussed, but because it's earnest. It wasn't like, we're going to present what you think. Uh, you know, lesbians in high school are. We're going to show you what we as lesbians in high school actually would have been. And I think that's the huge difference. What um, what terrifies you now as a creator going forward? What terrifies me now as a creator? Uh, I think that 
that's such a, a tough question. I think as a creator, I always just want to make sure that we're doing right by the story because I think that we're always learning. And I think that we're always learning that things that we did before maybe are not the best way to do things and the best way to tell a story or the best way to present a perspective. I'm not one of these that necessarily believes that every tale you tell has to be virtuous or uh, without its um, you know, entanglements, but I think you need to be thoughtful about it. Depiction doesn't equal endorsement, but thoughtful depiction still is key. And I always just want to do right by the story I'm telling. And I always want to do right by the communities that I'm representing when I'm telling a story. And I think that no matter how ingrained in a world you are, whether it's horror, whether it's a being part of a marginalized community, whatever, you can only speak to your experience. And so there's a fear that you're not going to do even that right. And that, from a creative standpoint, is always something that I think I'm going to worry about. And I know many people do. So... Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's already difficult to try to uh, successfully put your own experience into an accurate, uh, accurate words. And then you have to think about other people who you can't even begin to realize their perspective. So, yeah. Yeah. Was there ever a time that you felt that you failed? I think every artist does. You know, I uh, I think this is a really well-timed question, though, because I actually responded to someone on Twitter this morning who said, uh, what is your advice for someone who's making their first feature, their first indie feature. And I thought about it and I told them, I was like, well, you need to know that not everything is going to work out. And uh, that's true of your first film and that's gonna be true of your 50th film. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think what happens is sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves stepping onto a set to make everything perfect always that it actually kind of muddies the experience. And I think that as, as you know, production comes with problems. And every production has problems. It's just sometimes it's a big one, sometimes it's a small one, sometimes it reveals itself mm -hmm. right away, sometimes it doesn't. And how you can uh, prepare yourself is when they arise, rather than panic, look at it, step back, and think about how you can learn from it, or take that problem and turn it into a new avenue of creativity, which is something we have to do in the indie sphere all the time. So as far as failing at, at things, I know that I've had my moments where I certainly freaked out or wished I could have done better. Uh, but over the years, I've learned that, okay, like if this happens, then take a second, think it through, re-rack, move forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, my thought is, you're always gonna have moments. We, we all as artists feel like imposters sometimes. It's just what you do with it afterwards that's, that's the most significant. Uh, I know that wasn't exactly a specific incident, but. Um, no, no. You know, that, that, that just made me think of like flexibility. Uh, I feel like there's almost a parallel between, you know, physical and, and mental in, in this case. Uh, you have to keep your mind flexible in case you have to pivot to avoid injury, like it is with, with physical, like if you stretch and keep yourself mm -hmm. physical, physically flexible, it will avoid injury in case something happens. And I feel like the same can be said mentally for uh, if you're making a movie or yeah. doing anything, if a problem arises, as long as you've stretched your perspective ahead of time, you'll be able to better pivot and avoid uh, having it be disastrous. No, it's interesting. I, you know, every 
filmmaker is different and their path is different. But uh, one one bit of advice that I read uh, comes from John Carpenter that I think is so true is and he says that the, the best thing for a director is to always have a decision. When a problem arises, you have to make a decision and you can reserve the right to change your mind later. But nothing is more chaotic to a film set when you look to the person in charge and they don't know. And so I've always kept that in mind. And so if someone comes to me with a question, I always have a yes or no answer. And then later I can think about it and be like, okay, you know what? I changed my mind. Let's do that. But it keeps momentum and it keeps uh, sort of the the at least illusion that, mm -hmm. you know, everything is is together and that you know what you're doing. Yeah, the faith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that... More than anything, as as we all know, indie films are often held together by you know some bubble gum and a bus ticket. So <laughs> you, you got to at least keep the faith. Is that your nightlight? We we ask a lot on this show what your nightlight is. Like amidst everything that keeps you up at night, that terrifies you about being a creative, and in my opinion, an incredibly innovative creative who's working in this sphere that has so much you know going against them all the time. What what's the nightlight? What keeps you going? What keeps me going is that there's always somebody who needs your story. So uh, when I have that fear that, is this worth it? Or will I get to tell another story? Will I get to an make another movie? I know that if I fight for it and find the way, someone's going to need it. I always say that every movie out there is at least one person's favorite movie. And mm -hmm. so if you make it, you have to remember that you're making it for that person. Of course, it's nice when our movies come out and 100 people like it, 100,000 people like it. But if you can reach that one person, then that's what it's for. Because that's what art ultimately is mm -hmm. about. You know, we, we can have big aspirations, but if you can tell the story that affects one person, you did your job. And that's what keeps me going. I want to be able to at least give my story to one other person who needed it. What would be the ultimate, like, what's next? If I could hand you the next the next project that you would want to take on, what would it be? Oh, gosh. I always have so many projects I want to do. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think that I would really, really like to do uh, a big gay horror musical. I think that would be fun. Uh, <laughs> mostly because I've never directed a musical. I've done a lot of big gay movies. But, uh, like, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think that would be great. I think I would like to do that. Um, or something with witches. I love witches. Oh, yeah. that's that's a fun thing to know. Do you, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps for later. Um, what, uh, what I... I, what kind of what kind of villains would you have? What kind of monsters would you have in the in the big gay musical? Um, <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. Evangelical creatures. <laughs> no, no. I, I I will say I love vampires. I always have. Uh, I have probably written one vampire movie too many for other filmmakers, so people are probably crying for me to stop. But uh, I think that there's something just really great about uh, vampirism uh, in terms of how it relates also to queer storytelling. Uh, and so I could see that being a thing. I mean, that j genre from the start has been intertwined with uh, queerness because uh, is it Carmela? Is that the name of the? Yeah, no, yeah. Carmela is really significant to vampire lore for a number of reasons. Of course, it's a, a, vamp a queer vampire story written by Sheridan Le Fanu about a lesbian vampire. Uh, but Bram Stoker himself was a big fan of that book. And it came out, I think, about 30 years before Dracula. But he mm -hmm. loved that book and essentially borrowed elements of uh, the attributes of Carmela to create Dracula. And so I always say, you know, the world's most famous vampire couldn't exist without a lesbian vampire first. So it's always been queer. Uh, and I also, Dracula is kind of a queer story. I mean, too. Yeah. did you 
when you read Dracula as a kid, did it did it terrify? Well, I don't know. How old were you when you read Dracula? Uh, I read Dracula, I think, probably in junior high. I don't know that it terrified me, but I love it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, Dracula endures as one of my favorite characters. Um, I loved the sim like that was around that time where I was getting really into commentary yeah. and like symbolism and the fact that Dracula represented to this Irish author the idea of a foreign plague coming from a, you know a faraway land to civilization and what that meant and uh, then also the fact that he still portrayed him as seductive and sexy like the idea that death doesn't always come in dangerous ways it can come wearing a suit and oh, I, I, I really that. liked the idea that um the story endures. Dracula, I believe, uh, maybe next to Sherlock Holmes, is the most adapted literary character. Like, has has more spinoff media and more film yeah. adaptations and audio adaptations than anybody else. So, like, the attachment is there for for the world. And I think we're fascinated because he's someone that we inherently know is scary, but also we're kind of attracted to. Yeah, I remember reading it when I was a when I was a kid, and it like actually and it actually like was summertime and like sent warm like I had the window <laughs> open and like the warm wind would like like mm. actually freak me out, but like it was also like kind of enticing, you know. Right. It's such an interesting thing. I, I I could talk to you about this for hours, but we have we have to wrap to wrap up. Where uh where can people find you? Where can they listen to Midnight Mass? Uh, what what else would you like them to know about you? Uh, sure. Uh, you can find me at Michael Verratti on Twitter and. Instagram. Uh, Midnight Mass comes out every other Wednesday at midnight where we cover different cult cinema uh, and it is wherever podcasts are found. Also, I have a feature film, which I can say is not uh, strike. Uh, it's strike compliant. Um, <laughs> And uh, it's a feature film that I wrote and directed called There's a Zombie Outside, which uh, we're going to be doing some uh, press on really soon and should be coming out at the beginning of the year. I'm really excited about that. It is queer and strange and uh, features a, a wide uh, array of talent. So I'm excited for that to hit soon. Well, thank you, Michael. This has been fantastic. Please be sure to tune into Midnight Mass. Check out There's a Zombie Outside. Is that what it is? There's a yeah. Zombie Outside. And um, we, until next time, we are Scream Dreams. I'm Catherine Corcoran. I'm James A. Janice. Remember to keep the light on. Oh, 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 oh,